Welcome to the flip side, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Galen Clavio, joined by Brian Moritz as we get set to talk about a bunch of random things we thought were interesting this week and a few things that you thought were interesting this week per our contractual agreements with the internet. Brian, (laughs) good to see you again. We had to skip last week because last week was crazy here. We had homecoming, all kinds of stuff Uh, going on. But uh, we're back. We're bad. We're mad. We're we're ready to rock and roll. What's going on on your end of things? Um, well, this is great weather to be a virus up in uh, Western New York this week. It Ugh. was it was eighty degrees yesterday on Sunday, and then today Monday it was a high of forty eight. Yeah. Um. So that was that, and then it's going to be seventy again. So it actually felt kind of like fall for about I don't know twelve hours, and then it's going to go back to being summer. Um. But. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I mean, I'm going to claim being a Syracuse football fan right now in this week after the I, nice win that they had. Dude, bang oh, that as as long as you can. I, I mean, this is literally the only time I'm going to get to brag about being a Syracuse football fan ever. Probably, maybe, maybe yeah, they're, they're looking solid. They're looking. They're 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 improving, which is good. Um, so yeah, um, a whole lot, a whole lot of internet outrage machine stuff happening in the in the past ten days or so since since we've last recorded um and i'm also because we're recording this at night we're back on our kind of traditional it's kind of like flip side classic here because we're back on back on monday nights and so i'm back to drinking while recording so yeah the last couple episodes have been and you're back in the basement i'm back in the basement i'm not again one of these days i'm gonna go full laundry room and just go full throwback um so i'm I'm in the kitchen which is not normal anymore no um so all kinds of strange things going on yeah so I'm drinking. So yeah, folks, the last many several episodes have been us me not drinking. Um, but anyway, I have the uh, so my beer of the week this week is the Flying Bison, boy, uh, Bisonberry Kolsch. I hope I'm pronouncing Kolsch right. Kolsch. Um, yes. It is yes. It is an excuse me. It's an ale brewed with blueberries and blackberries. Um, mm. and it's quite good. It's it's not as not as fruity as you would expect it. So it's kind of a more subtler fruit flavor. So it's one of those beers that you can have. More than a fruit, one of those interesting fruit beers. So you can have more than one of, and it's not overpowering. So, right. Uh, I will throw in a beer of the week as well, uh, even though I'm not drinking it at this particular moment. My most recent beer that I really enjoy, let me call it up here real quick. It's on the Untapped app, which is not paying us for this advertisement, but they should be. Uh, this is the, it was the Burning Hands. Uh, hmm. IPA, which is from the Tap Brewery here locally, you have to come to Bloomington to drink it. It's it's not available for sale, but it is a spiced IPA uh, with, with chili powder, and it's actually quite good. It's uh, it's one of those where I was always a little bit nervous about the idea of having a chili powder beer, but as it turns out, right. it was it was like tantalizingly warm without actually getting too hot. All right. All right, sounds good. And, and I'm looking forward to our to my debut visit to Indiana at the end of April, where I will have like a, like eighty thousand beers to drink and like the the corresponding number of restaurants to eat at, which is going to make for an awesome conference. I might have actually, I might actually rough, get to the conference time here, man. You're gonna have a rough time. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I might, you're gonna really struggle. So I should so I, I I should start I should start tape I should start a, a workout regimen now to get ready for it. Is what you're saying? A workout regimen. I would start a drinking regimen just to get well, your by, body accustomed to no, things. By, 
that's what I meant by workout. I mean, oh, okay. not, and so, so, and we should uh, give a shout out to friend of the program, freak, frequent uh, topic contributor, Lauren Smith for her uh, finishing, becoming an Ironman yesterday and, uh, and finishing her Ironman race. That was awesome to watch. Great, um, uh, great accomplishment. Absolutely. She deserves all the credit in the world for doing that. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it, she biked further than I will run all year. So congratulations. Right. So, so is there anything? Because I, I, I believe I saw in the in the photo that her husband posted, her final time was like fifteen hours or whatever. Which, whatever you finished, you could take eight days to do it. You still finished. Is there anything that you could do for fifteen hours straight? Play video games. Ah, I've done, that's it on, easy. done it on numerous occasions. I, I once had a twenty-four hour uh, nonstop session of Gran Turismo two when I was in. Ooh, okay, college. that was. Probably my best accomplishment as an undergraduate. Um, <laughs> so that I've, I've driven 15 hours, almost as nonstop, stopping for gas, uh, I think twice on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about it. I've never slept 15 hours in a row that I can remember. And uh, I think, yeah, that's about it. Yes. How about you? I've, I, I don't know if I've driven 15. I've driven 12 before or t- 11, between 11 and 12, pretty much nonstop, except for like food and gas and stuff. Um, I don't know. I was thinking like maybe I could, we could podcast for 15 hours straight, like do an old school Senate style filibuster where you can't yield the floor. Um, I feel like, I I feel like that's basically all I could, all I could potentially do for 15 hours. And, and, you know, I'm I'm not saying that it would be quality by about hour three, but I, I, I feel like uh, of anything that that's probably where I'm at with what I could do. For gotcha. that amount of time, so, um, so we need to get we have we have stuff we have listener topics to get into, but we also have a lot of stuff that that we've been talking about today about uh, about it. And the first thing you just sent me on Twitter, and this is a graph from the New York Times Interactive, I believe. I'm going to assume it's from the Upshot. Yes. Um, but now uh, I'll, I'll let you set this up since you sent it to me. Well, as most of you know. There's been some ludicrousness in relation to what's been going on uh, with Donald Trump and the NFL in particular in the aftermath of of the initial anthem controversy and then the Mike Pence-fueled rekindling of the controversy. So there was something that Dylan Scott tweeted out, and this was at the beginning of of last week, or the middle of last week, I guess it was, and it's a chart which I am certain that Brian will be linking to in the show notes. So just go ahead and click on that now. But it's a chart of how Trump voters said they viewed the NFL. And this is a tracking, um, it's a tracking poll of, of polarization uh, relating to the NFL that's been tracked for quite a while. And um, what we saw was very interesting because um, Trump, Voters, according to this chart, indicated almost in, almost without question all the way through March, April, May, June, July, August, uh, and, and even into early September that they favorably uh, or very favorably viewed the NFL. Uh, we're talking about like 70% approval or, or favorability rating, 60% approval, never really dropped below that. Only one time, looking at this chart right now, only one time did it drop below 50%, and that was like end of March, early April. But then it shot right back up, and it was, yeah, consistently in, between, in the 60 to 70% range. So then there's a, a moment where um, the 
favorability, unfavorability ratings cross over right at the right in the middle portion of September. And now, according to this, only about 30% of Trump voters view the NFL favorably and over 60% view it unfavorably. We're talking about a, a complete, complete shift in attitudes in relation to net favorability rating, uh, which, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating now. Uh, according to the article, the NFL uh, in these polls is now the seventh most polarizing brand uh, or company uh, in terms of net favorability ratings where uh, Democrats or Clinton voters in this case have a plus 38 net favorability rating on the NFL and Trump voters now have a negative 24 uh, Mm -hmm. favorability rating. Now by comparison, Clinton voters have a negative 14 net favorability rating on Fox news and Trump voters have a plus 55. Uh, So that's the sort of, of, of company that you see keeping here. And that's, it's just fascinating to me because if there was one sport that you would identify Trump voters as most likely to be hugely invested in, it would be NASCAR. But the second most likely sport that they would be heavily invested in would be the NFL. And the fact that in one month, simply apparently just because of Trump deciding that he wanted to go after the NFL and score some cultural points, the fact that Trump voters went that far opposite simply because of what Trump said. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, Brian. What, what are you what, like? What, what are we looking at here? All right. So, and, and, and you know, the, the 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 charts and the article from the Upshot will be at show notes, uh, the, either in your podcasting app or sportsmediaguide.com on the flip side tab. Um. So, and, and what what's interesting about it is you look at how the Clinton voters view the NFL versus the Trump voters view the NFL, and they were basically the same line. I mean, with maybe some little variation here or there, but nothing. You know, I don't think it would be statistically significant or, you know, just looking looking at these two side by side until the end of, of September. I mean, they're basically the same map, basically the same grid, you know, about around 60, 65 percent, somewhat a very favorable view of the NFL, both Clinton voters and Trump voters. And then right around 20 percent, probably like 15, 20 percent, somewhat unfavorable. And then you look at this at the at the graph for the Trump voters, and you see just the lo- the the purple line. It's a purple line that's just the somewhat or very unfavorably, and it's down squiggly, down down down. And then end of September, it just skyrockets. It just right. like almost shoots off the chart, and the corresponding gray line coming back down. And it's just stunning because you know that's got to be dire- that's directly correlated with. When Trump made his comments, the uh, the sons of bitches comments, and then the players started kneeling. Um, I mean, it's you know, the, you, the, this is you know not the example to teach when of correlation does not equal causation. I mean, this is this is causation right here. You're yeah, looking no, at this. Is- <laughs> there, there's no there's no there's no there's no confounding variable here. I mean, this is it, and you know, it's just. I mean, in one way, I'll say it's kind of terrifying that basically Donald Trump decides to take on the NFL and his voters follow lockstep. I mean, um, now, and and so it's kind of terrifying in a way, you know, you have that, you know, dear leader says this, and now we all view this. And that's, that, that is scary. Now, now I, I guess for, I I don't know devil's advocate just kind of stuff that's going in my mind looking at this. We say they may they may view it somewhat unfavorably or very unfavorably, but that doesn't 
you know, that that's a view. That's an opinion of it. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not watching it. That doesn't mean they don't necessarily care about it. Um, that doesn't mean they're not still interested in it. Um, you know, those two things can exist kind of simultaneously. You can have an unfavorable view of it and still watch your team, or you can have an unfavorable view of it because you think these guys are all, you know, spoiled, spoiled millionaires who should know their place and whatever code of language you want. Um, so, I mean, it's just, I mean, on one level, it's just attitude. It doesn't really tell us kind of anything concrete in terms of action, but man, it's scary to see that, that, that's straight up and that, that, that it's almost a straight vertical line uh, in change of it. And, and, you know, that's scary to think about, you know, to think about the, the kind of power that 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 uh, the president's words yield there, among his voters and among definitely a certain segment of his voters. I don't know what were your thoughts when you first saw this. I mean, I think yes, it's one of those. I mean, I I guess I it's hard for me to I express feelings of terror. So I look at it more as it's very instructive in seeing an effect that we've seen now consistently over the course of the Trump presidency and even stretching back into the campaign where people who are Trump voters are really using Trump as basically the person to tell them what's right and what's wrong. Like he's suddenly become the cultural cipher for a whole bunch of people, which is, is really interesting considering that I, I would wager two years ago, none of them would have, identified Trump as a cultural cipher for them. Uh, so sure. it's very, it's a very fascinating political uh, process that we're watching unfold here. And it, it is certainly disturbing when you think about, you know, that's the, but this is, you know, we've always in politics, we've talked about the power of the bully pulpit and things like that. And the ability of directing people from that office. And I, you know, I think this is just a very naked, uh, you know, and, and, not necessarily shocking, but certainly surprising manifestation of that. What right. I, what I, the, what I, well, I guess the thing I find the most fascinating about it is that this is something that the majority of his voters have probably held near and dear for a long time. And right. you know, they, they've, they've looked upon football as their, you know, that's their cultural heritage and all of this. And, you know, rather than just look at, you know, even if they disagree with the anthem protests and they disagree with, with the actions of some of the players, rather than side with the sport and say, okay, this is just a few bad actors, they've now decided they view the whole league unfavorably because this president that's only been in office for you know 10 months has deemed it wrong and bad and people should be ashamed, da-da-da-da. Like that, to me, is a really interesting thing because, I mean, the NFL – as popular and as valuable as that has been to a lot of people in terms of cultural capital, if they're willing to throw that over the side of the boat because Trump says something, that does make you wonder about what else is out there. Well, the other scary uh, poll results I saw tonight, and it's making the rounds on Twitter, which we're going to start talking about in a few minutes, but um, was that uh, according, I think it was a Quinnipiac poll, 45% of Republicans favor first strike nuclear attack against North Korea. Um, and again, that's, you know, again, kind of like you said, I feel like, um, you know, there's a certain segment of Trump supporters who are, who have always held these beliefs and Trump is just kind of like that outward manifestation of this, the, why don't we just nuke them? You know, why, and, and it's kind of like the ugly side of a lot of, uh, of our culture, I think. 
um, and that they, 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 this appeals to them. And, but I also, you know, you know, you wonder like, I don't know, man, I, I hear this on, I hear this on uh, the five thirty eight politics podcast all the time, but you know, partisanship's a hell of a drug now. And, you know, we're very, you know, entrenchment is, is really deep. And you, you, I, I, I wonder how much of that support is, you know, or, or support for Trump's positions or against the NFL or whatever, however you want to say it. Um, I wonder how much of it is, you know, actually this is what I believe or just kind of absolute tribalism run amok and absolute, well, I can't view that. I have to, I, this is what my team says. And so I'm on my team on this one. I and think, I think that, I think that's more what's going on. The tribalism aspect. Uh, I was talking with Ryan Voris about this a little bit the other day, and that was his, the first thing he said, I, you know, but I think it's, it's also a product of the media environment that we find ourselves in when, you know, um, when you throw everybody online and give them expressive capabilities for really the first time in human history, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and those expressive capabilities are not limited by geography. They're not limited by by physical proximity to other human beings. Mm-hmm. A lot of things happen, but one of the main things that I think we're seeing happen over and over again is that people are are, are basically congealing into groups because they want to feel like they belong to something bigger than themselves. And right. I think that's all this is. And I think that you know what what you're seeing with Trump. And the NFL, to take it specifically on that front, is a a sport that has kind of coasted for a long time on its popularity, but is really just kind of a soulless, faceless corporate structure at this point. Like there, there's nothing. It's not like the NFL where there's like a lot of faces to put to the league and the people that love the the uh, excuse me. It's not like the NBA where like there's there's faces to put to the league and the people that love the NBA love the NBA for the people, not necessarily just because it's professional basketball. And I feel like with the NFL, you know, the the NFL has manifested this environment over the course of the last 30 years with free agency and with, with, you know, with non-guaranteed contracts where you're rooting for laundry as as Jerry Seinfeld famously once said. Mm -hmm. So as a result, you don't really care that much about the laundry. And at the end of the day, when given the choice between, the, the sport of football and your political team, which seems like a much more because there's a, there's an opposite. Like, it's not like you like football or you like basketball and you have to choose right. one or the other, but with, with politics, it's like you are a, you know, you're, you're a Trump supporter or you're a dirty liberal, you know I mean? It's like, it's well, one and, of the two. Yeah. And right. And, that, yeah. And so I think that's what manifests itself here to some degree. Right. And it's not just I'm a Trump supporter. It's I'm a Trump supporter. So therefore, I hate Hillary or I hate liberals. And and, and the two are not mutually exclusive. The two are not separate thoughts like they are one and the same. And you see that on the left, too. I am am a Clinton supporter and therefore I hate Trump and I hate everything that comes from that. Um, and so I don't know. It, it, the media environment is an interesting thing, and we can kind of segue into the uh, the the absolute um, interstitial dumpster fire that has become Twitter. Um, and I, I loved how you, uh, <laughs> you you phrased that on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, ironically, that how how Twitter has absolutely no chill. Um, I, I it, it's funny. I, w- I was talking. I forget how I was talking about this with a friend of mine over the weekend. And because I actually did the, I think it was Friday, was the women boycott Twitter 
uh, where like women, uh, bu- uh, there, it was a movement on, uh, on Twitter to, for women to not tweet. And this is after the Rose McGowan, right. um, um, Harvey Weinstein thing. And so I took the day off of Twitter and it was glorious. Like it was, I, 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 I found it was, I, I, I didn't feel like I missed much of anything. Um, with it. And I've been talking with some friends about it and like how I, I, I've de-emphasized Twitter in a lot of my journalism classes um, and how I've, uh, I don't know. And, uh, and it's, and it's just kind of so happens, I guess. I've seen a bunch of pieces written about people starting to leave Twitter um, and, and, or like really becoming critical of it. And there's a great piece yesterday. It's in show notes too. The show notes for this week are, are just off the charts. Awesome. But it, it was a piece from uh, Mike Montero, who's a graphic designer, um, who I've read a lot of his stuff before. The uh, the headline on the piece is "One Person's History of Twitter from Beginning to End." Uh, it's a really great piece. It's, he was in, involved in involved with Twitter at the beginning and kind of saw it, it kind of traces its evolution and what it could have been, what the promise was, and kind of what started going wrong. And it, this is a great paragraph. I'm going to read, and then I, I'll, I'll you know we can start from there. But uh, Twitter was built at the end of that era. Their goal was giving everyone a voice. They were so obsessed with giving everyone a voice that they never stopped to wonder what would happen when everyone got one. And they never asked themselves what everyone meant. That's Twitter's original sin. Like Oppenheimer, Twitter was so obsessed with splitting the atom that they never stopped to think what we'd do with it. And I just, I love that notion of they were so obsessed with giving everyone a voice, they never stopped to wonder what would happen when everyone got one. I love the the phrasing of that because the easy way to think of was uh, giving everyone a voice, they never stopped to wonder if they should or something like that. But it's kind of the, you know, Jurassic Park. Right, right, exactly. Um, And and, and so now the Velociraptors have have just taken over, uh, have taken over, the Indominus Rex has taken over Twitter, and now we're stuck, you know, with next standing next to Chris Pratt with a tortured analogy. And I don't know. It was funny because we, 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 our last episode that we recorded came on the day of the Cam Newton thing where he uh, insulted a woman reporter. And, you know, the, and we avoided that for a couple of reasons, um, you know, and especially just the way the Twitter outrage machine was going. But, um, but I mean, you've been, you were an early adopter of Twitter. You've been on Twitter a long time. And we, this podcast exists because we basically became friends over Twitter. Um, I don't know. Where are your thoughts on where the platform is right now? Just, I mean, macro micro for you. What's I mean, what's Twitter like for you in 2017? Well, Okay, I I reject on its face the core conceptual philosophy of that quote that you just read because it implies that giving people a voice is somehow um, the wrong thing to do. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think the problem is more like the argument there seems to be, okay, uh the voices that we don't like, we can't avoid. Well, that's the problem with a highly democratized medium like Twitter, where um, there there aren't barriers to entry. Uh, you know, I think the issues come in when we we try to basically accept all communication as being relatively equal. And what you think is good communication, I might think is terrible communication on the part of other people. And you're going to have some trouble discerning that. I mean, look, there's, there's a lot of despicable stuff that is said on Twitter. I think we're still better off having the potential of it being there versus if it wasn't there at all, because, you know, I, I think that the bigger issue as far as Twitter is concerned is everybody takes everything 
so seriously on Twitter. They take every every tweet, every everything that happens on Twitter is treated like it is a hundred percent serious statement. The lack of context that is available within the tweets is often utilized as a weapon against the person who made the tweets in the first place. And all of that, it, it adds to the, the larger issue that is being spoken to here, which is the number of uninformed or misinformed people that are on there talking. Here's the thing. You don't need to listen to the uninformed people. There was a tweet that I found while following a thread in another conversation, someone retweeted it actually. And, um, it was, it was a tweet originally from this guy named, uh, you know, Bill Mitchell. And Bill Mitchell's like a right-wing talk show host out of Florida. His tweet was, yeah. the more I see of John McCain, the more I believe he was the songbird in Vietnam and sold out his friends. He does that now every day. So then a woman named Sarah M. Quinlan responds, this is despicable, referring to the original tweet. The man was tortured for years because he was captured while serving his country. That was then responded to by a woman, uh, I assume it's a woman, uh, Alicia Lee, 1256. And the response to that response tweet was, McCain lived in the Hanoi Hilton. He wasn't a POW. Now, <laughs> um, the reason I wanted to... to like, for, for, for the youth <laughs> listening, the Hanoi Hilton was a euphemism for a very fa- infamous POW camp. It was, but, it was, it was literally irony. Yes. Um, so the reason I, I wanted to put that chain of three things together. Okay. Bill Mitchell has 288,000 followers. Uh, how many of those are real or fake? I don't know, but he, he hosts a radio show. He's got a lot of people that follow him. He is the sort of media voice that would have popped up on some kind of independent radio station 30 years ago. Um, the person that initially responded to him has 3,300 followers. That's a pretty decent audience on Twitter. Uh, the person that responded with the Hanoi Hilton comment has 699 followers. Yet that was the tweet that got retweeted out of that entire chain by a bunch of people. And now that becomes part of the much larger ecosystem. And and so I guess my point is, the reason I tweeted that Twitter has no chill thing is that you can go and find anything to support whatever um, negative connotations you have about the human race, negative connotations about your opponents or your opponent's supporters, anything is out there. But there's no discipline on the part of most people on Twitter in terms of who we're actually going to listen to and who we're not going to listen to. And I, And so to me, I still believe that not having the messages and not having the people having the ability to, to tweet things out is is worse than having it and being appalled by what's there. Uh, and I say that as someone who is appalled by this stuff on a daily basis. I'm appalled by what I see on Facebook on a daily basis. But, you know, you have to take ownership and responsibility for your own usage, not just your own tweeting, but your own consumption of media. And I think that that ultimately, people don't want that. People want what television was 25 years ago, where you just turned it on and messages were sent to you. And that was that. Um, and this is so much more of an active media environment, and I just don't think that people are prepared for handling it on a daily basis. I say that as someone who is generally pretty prepared, and I even have a trouble handling it on, handling it on a daily basis. I don't know what the answer is. I just know that I don't think the I don't think the problem was Twitter's original idea, and I don't think it's a sin 
to give a low barrier of entry to a communication medium that networks the entire planet. There's, there's just as much good coming out of it as bad. We just happen to hyper-focus on all of the bad right now. That's a good point. Um, and, and, and you've been, I know, very consistent in that worldview of social media and Twitter. I mean, since I've known you, and especially since we've been doing the podcast. Um, and I, 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 have a, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this, kind of a lot of on a personal level, some on kind of more theoretical level of kind of the work we do. Um, and like, I, I mean, I mean, one of the things I like about why I agree with that, um, that the the quote I read was, it it was also in, in the context of Twitter as a Silicon Valley business and the Silicon Valley business model, as Mike points out in the piece is, um, X over X over X growth per year. I mean, that and, and like getting more users, getting more engagement, kind of that exponential growth for investors. Um, and so within the context of that, it's let, let, let's have, you know, the most the, the, the most users, the most engagement, the most all of that more, 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 more. And um, I don't know, you know, I yes, I, I feel like in a way I agree with you that, you know, I'd rather Twitter exist than not exist, you know, in general. Um, I think that that, you know, it's a good, you know, the, the you know, you have your lines good versus bad of it. Um, you know, I'm also lucky. I'm a straight white dude who's never been harassed and doxxed and all the horrible, horrible stuff that happens to so many of, of our friends and colleagues who are women, who are people of color, who are women of color, all that. I get that. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I, I'm also kind of coming at it, I think from a, from a, from a personal user standpoint and kind of just on, you know, you know, yeah, coming to terms with, like you said, that, you know, how I'm using this platform and this media platform, how I'm relating to it, who I follow, who I listen to, who I retweet, who I who I favorite, who I kind of pay attention to um, with it. And it is it is such an, you know, an active you, you have to kind of it's a garden, really. You, you kind of have to be active and calling it and weeding it and, 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 and keeping focused on that. And that is a, a decent amount of work. Um, but you know, I, I, and I don't know, it just, this, this is not quantitative at all. Um, but I don't know if Twitter, maybe you can see, I don't know, you, you, I doubt you agree with me on this, but Twitter feels different than it did maybe two year a year or two ago. And it's not just, I don't think it's just the Trump thing. Um, you know, maybe Trump is like the bigger issue and a bigger symptom of that, but I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it feels like. I don't know, less fun, less informative. It feels, you know, in a weird way, less vital. Um, like I can go, if I, I can not be on Twitter and not feel like I missed anything, both in terms sure. of news, but in terms of kind of, you know, cultural conversation and, you know, and, and that. And, you know, like I was saying, and, and as I prep my, you know, I think about it from my, from my students' point of view too. And as I prep classes, like for my first couple of years teaching, like it was, I was very heavily invested in using Twitter online in my classes and like everyone tweeted and, and we did it. And now I'm using that, using that lesson. I don't know, you know, part of it, I feel like is our conversations about how, you know, so few such a sm- relatively small number of the audience is on Facebook um, as on Twitter anyway. So, you know, we spend a lot of time working on a platform that reaches 16% of the population. And most of those are media members and Russian bots. 21, um, 21%. Now. 21%. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> but, um, 
but I don't know. It also, it, it, it I can't put my finger Fuck. on, I, I can't put my finger on what I mean by this, but it just, it, for some reason, Twitter feels less vital than I it understand. did a few no, years I ago. It. I get it. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, I think what you're watching is the life cycle of a social network that, that's happened many times before. <clears throat> so examples, message boards, um, you know, sports message boards, any message boards, really. The early adopters are generally people who have specifically sought out an environment where they can communicate with other users in a way that is intelligent, uh, is, is kind of you know, deep, quote unquote. They're seeking out uh, a higher level of discourse from what they're used to in just the normal conversations they have with friends who maybe aren't quite as informed as they are. Mm-hmm. So you build a critical mass of people who are like that, but you hit a point, kind of a point of no return, where the community becomes so popular that it starts attracting uh, people who don't have the same level of intellectual capacity, who don't have the same level of technological adeptness, who are um, less nuanced in their willingness to discuss things and are more apt to go right at argumentation and name calling. And once those people are in the pool, they start attracting more people like them. And mm-hmm. what you've seen in message boards is uh, the, the natural life cycle of message boards has been to create uh, premium forums, places where people pay extra money, right. specifically so when they have conversations about their favorite teams, they don't have to deal with all of the rabble who are either just there to troll or who don't have very good opinions or who can't express their opinions in an eloquent way. You see the same thing and it's happened on Facebook over the course of time. You know, I mean, Facebook, when it was just us college kids in the, in the, in the mid two thousands was a pretty cool place. And then high schoolers got to be on there and suddenly it got a lot less cool. Then parents, then grandparents. And now you can't have a conversation on Facebook without your enraged uncle hopping in in a conversation that he wasn't even invited to in the first place and ruining the whole thing. Um, I think this is what happens when humans get online. And to some degree, it's what happens when humans get in large spaces. Consider the difference between a, um, a small gathering of people and a stadium full of people. And the different sorts of behaviors that happen based upon the self-selection or lack thereof in both of those environments. And that's kind of what's happened with Twitter. Um, Certainly, Twitter was starting to trend this way before the Trump phenomenon happened. But now that it's happened, a lot of Trump supporters have been told all of the liberals and all of the Hillary voters are, are on Twitter. You need to go combat them with the truth. And that's what they do. And... That's how you get, you know, McCain stayed in the Hanoi Hilton. Like that's that's the that's the genesis of that sort of thing, in my opinion. It's that that group of people who are almost entirely Facebook users that they lived on Facebook. That was the only social network that they were on. They migrated over to Twitter because they heard that's where all the action was. Because mm-hmm. the, the the media leaders on that side of the political aisle said this is where we can control the conversation because you can go and directly argue with the the liberal mainstream media there. So, um, so I think that's a lot of it. I really do. And I, and I think that you're, you know, it's why you constantly see migrations when it comes to digital media from place to place. And it wouldn't shock me if a lot of people quit Twitter. I've thought about it. It's kind of, 
it's kind of outlived its usefulness to some degree in terms of helping to grow audiences. Every social network except Twitter has grown in the last three years, all the major right. ones. You know, Facebook's grown, Instagram's grown, Pinterest has grown, LinkedIn has grown, and Twitter has stayed flat. It's mm-hmm. been at 20 or 21% for the last three years. And there's a reason for that. It's, I mean, people don't see the value of being on Twitter if they're not already on Twitter. Right. And the people that see the value in being on Twitter generally either are there to get confirmation from other people at their social status of what they already believe, or they're there to argue and troll people who believe something opposite of what they believe. Right. It's yeah. And, and I mean, I can almost picture, you know, it's funny. You can almost picture a world where Twitter, I don't know if it's ever going to close. Like it might run out of money or something like that, or it might, you know, lose its funding, but it, it would be, you know, it would be very interesting to see if Twitter, if that my, if that exodus begins and combat that with, you know, the Russian troll problem and, you know, the general kind of arguing on it. I mean, one of the other things, I mean, it, it kind of does go back to our old pal, the online disinhibition, disinhibition effect. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, for, for, you know, any non long time listeners and non, uh, uh, communications theorists out there. That's a great Venn diagram of our listeners, by the way. Yes. Um, but um, uh, that that's the idea that, you know, you are more willing to act in a, uh, you, you are, you are going to act online in a way that you are not going to act in person. You know, you're, you have that, you, you, you've lost your inhibitions and you're more willing to, let's say, argue with, you know, your drunk uncle or something like that. Where in, in person, you just ignore him or go to the other room and watch the Lions game or something like that. Or, um, I mean, another way of putting it, something that you would say to somebody that would get you punched in the face, you won't say yeah. in person because you're wa- worried about getting punched in the face. Right. The same thing said online is going to have no real ramifications. and. Right. That's what you end up with. Yes. Right. And, and it's funny, you know, you think about, you can see a world where Twitter very quickly loses a lot of its, you know, urgency, a lot of its, you know, kind of as being a central home for things. And it, it would be kind of a stunning fall, you know, you know, I was, I was reading kind of like some of the old stuff on Twitter and, you know, it started out so optimistic and, you know, Twitter had the good fortune early on of being connected with the Arab Spring right around, was it 2010, 2011? Um, very early on. And it's, you know, it was about five years old then, but it's kind of like when it was kind of first starting to get mass appeal. It was right when I was starting grad school. So that was a huge, huge thing. Um, but it's, and, and so it kind of had all this optimism of like, you know, all the good that it could do. And this is what, this is kind of like the, you know, the, the public sphere. This is the open marketplace of ideas, you know, uh, online. And, you know, I, 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 it has not, I don't know if it's necessarily fulfilled that promise on a global scale um, that, that may be, you know, as the overall agent for good and democratization that we were a lot of a, a lot of people, a lot of us, we'll say it, we're, we're expecting it to or hoping to. Um, I don't know. It just it, it feels well, it feels like a different platform than it did a few years ago. I, I will say this. Twitter takes a lot of heat that Facebook should take. Oh, no question. Instagram should take. I mean, you know, the Twitter, the reason Twitter gets such bad press is because it's so public. Right. And, and, and it's executives are terrible people who say really stupid things. 
Well, I mean, they may or may not be terrible people, but they certainly do say stupid things. I mean, if you want to do a terrible people competition between Twitter's CEO or Twitter's like executives and Facebook executives, it might be a pretty close race. But that, that, you know, that yeah, that would be good. But you know, but I guess because everybody sees what goes on on Twitter, Twitter just just takes massive, massive hits all the time politically and, and from a PR perspective, and. I just think it's the way it's just people like the way that people act towards each other isn't good, but I think that that's, it's, it's kind of human nature and people don't want to hear that. People want to blame Twitter. People want to blame Facebook. They want to blame, you know, these other elements. But at the end of the day, people don't have a lot of, of regard for other people that they don't consider to be within their social structure. And that is not a new problem. I mean, we like to we like to talk about it like it's a new thing, and that you know we need to we need to do X, Y, and Z to fix it. I mean, you're talking about millennia upon millennia of of human evolution, where your group, your tribe, your fifty or so people that you you know traveled around with and and bred with and raised children with, that was all you had. And once, you know, it wasn't until we started building large cities, which only happened a few millennia ago, that we started getting a little bit of out of that and getting more into this communal structure. We're still dealing with a lot of things that as a, as a, as, as a, as a race of people, we don't know how to deal with because they're still relatively new. And what we're seeing right now is a, a social revolution where everybody's got this expressive capacity and this is the output. And Twitter because it is the most public and the easiest to access other people in is the one that ends up being the most vile, uh, the, the most problematic, but also the most important. And so I don't have a good answer for you. Uh, you know, yeah, it could shut down. If it shut down, something else would take its place. Maybe that's something else would do a little bit better job, but I don't know that you're ever going to get the genie completely back into the bottle of, this idea that we're going to have a limited number of people whose opinions matter enough and are trusted enough to be the public ones and everybody else's are shoved below the surface. Cause that's really what people seem to be pining for is this idea that we don't have to hear from everybody. We just hear from certain people. Well, you can do that now if you just go unfollow the people and mute the people that you don't like, but people don't mm-hmm. seem to be willing to do that either. It- it's I had a really good thought, I think. Oh, here it is. Oh, yeah. Got it back. Um, I, I feel like, too, there's there's a, a, a legal I- issue here. And like of all the, the issues that like Facebook has and Twitter has and, and, and social platforms have, you know, I think especially with Twitter, the harassment issue is probably their number one problem that they're facing. Right. You know, the, the harassment of women, the harassment of people of color. Um, the doxing, sure. the you know, the Gamergate thing. That's that's you know, for all the stuff but that that's like I don't. Frankly, not a Twitter problem. It's an internet problem. No, Twitter, no, yes, Twitter, yes, Twitter that's is a, that. a convenient vehicle, and it's a convenient thing to place blame on. But if you want the problems with doxing, the problems with harassment, those go to 4chan. Those go to Reddit. I mean, there's a lot of places that are a lot more centralized than Twitter. But I do think that that Twitter is where a lot of the a lot of the stuff happens, where people do get doxxed on Twitter. Their tweets get Twitter. You know, a writer may not be on 4chan or on Reddit, but if they're all, almost all writers aren't on Twitter for professional matter, and so that's where they get they 
experience a lot of the harassment. It may it may foment in, at 4chan, but they they may experience it on Twitter. And I feel like the bigger, from a legal perspective, the problem that a lot of these platforms have is, you know, from a from a legal standpoint, um, you a, a platform can be held liable for what is published on their site if they unless they um, what is it. I'm trying to phrase this right. If, if if they basically are just the conduit, if they if, if they start exercising a lot of editorial control over what's published, what's allowed, what's not, then you can be held liable. Then you could sue Twitter for libel. You could sue Twitter for invasion of privacy. All these torts. However, if they don't, if they're hands off, except for you know violations of the terms of service, air quotes, then you then they are exempt. It's under the CDA, the Communications Decency Act of. 1986 i think right um and so and, and so that's the other consideration that they have is the well we're, we're trying you know twitter probably understandably can't say look we have to be careful with what we censor from the alt-right because that's going to open us up to all manner of potential lawsuits and open us up to be considered a, a publication rather than an internet service uh platform but they can't say that. So then they kind of, they, they can still kind of hide it under behind this kind of free speech and open marketplace of ideas. And, you know, that works for that, that, that can work for us. But if you're, if you're getting doxxed and harassed via Twitter, you know, and, and you've filed complaints and you're not getting any answers on it and, and you're not getting any, and, and you're not, the perception especially is you're not getting any help then yeah then it's that's not success that's not a good platform you know i again i don't have an answer if i if we did we wouldn't be i wouldn't be in the basement podcasting i'd be in a fancier laundry room podcasting but i because i'd be rich but i don't you know i i I think that um you know this 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 is the marketplace of ideas you know good bad and different and unfortunately there's a lot of you know we have this romantic view of it but it can also be kind of an ugly place a lot of times well i mean i agree I, uh, it, it really, there's, this is, this is again, where I think it's important to emphasize how new and untested these waters are. Absolutely. For humankind. I mean, the, the, the very, the very core conceptualization of freedom of speech was not forged in an era when everybody could go after everybody with an equal voice. Uh, I mean, you know, and, and so I don't know, man. I mean, I think, I don't know that there's an easy way to fix that per se. Um, and I think as we've seen in our political structure, it is so easy to manipulate from the outside, you know? And I think that all of these revelations about Russian hacking, um, on Facebook for advertisements, so forth, you know, and the, I think the revelations of all of these troll farms that you see in Eastern Europe, they illustrate that um, to some degree there's not the capacity on the part of the audience here, at least here in the United States, to effectively filter and differentiate the messages coming in. Um, I, want, I mean, I really sit here and I wonder how much of the abuse, how much of the, the terrible opinions, how much of that is actually real people. I, yeah. I, I don't know if it actually is. I mean, you know, we've, there's certainly we want to think it is the people who who have bought stock in the conceptualization of of uh, you know most of the the the, the population out there being um, you know mouth breathing 
uh, you know, idiots who are just out to rage all the time at everything. There's certainly some cultural capital in believing that every troll you see online and every negative thing that you see is, uh, you know, emblematic and and caused by our shitty culture that everybody hates, supposedly. But mm-hmm. but we've now seen enough evidence. It's like, well, how much of that is real and how much of that is being fomented? And it really just illustrates how complacent American society has become in allowing that stuff to develop and just being okay with it developing. I, you know, I mean, whether it's the corporations not to doing more or whether it's people not combating it more fully, the idea that you're just willing to allow the discourse to go that way and not really establish an idea of what's going on and who's doing what that's, that's a complacent culture. And that does worry me. Right. The bot problem is a big problem, too, you know, yeah. cause on a on a, uh, on a just simply a pragmatic level of, you know, over uh, uh, of that. And, you know, the idea of free speech is great. But when you have, you know, troll bots, you know, literal computer scripts writing this stuff, writing stuff and sharing stuff, then, you know, then we're getting into like weird science. Then we're getting into weird like uh, uh, Brave New World crap here. Um, so, uh, we have a couple of two listener topics. Well, kind of one and a half. And then I, there's some quick hit topics I wanted to hit too. Uh, so let's do, I'll, I'll take this one unless you have a, 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 a I'm just going to take this one. Uh, so I posted on Facebook asking for topics as always on Facebook and on Twitter. If you have something you would like us to spend at least one minute on, it's contractually obligated by the rules of the internet, uh, that we must do that. So you can hit us up at hashtag flipside pod. Anyway, starting with uh, Caitlin Barthamus, who is my kid's uh, choreographer. Uh, She said that I'm normally a good topic of conversation. uh, Looks like shrugging emoji. Um, And since we're contractually obligated to talk about this for one minute, we have to talk about this for a full minute. And I'm trying my best to stretch this out for a full minute. Um, She did not mean that. Brian was a good topic of conversation. She meant that she herself was. She a good herself topic. is a good topic of conversation, and Kate is awesome. I will say that she, you know, she does youth. She, she works with the youth theater uh, that my my now seven year old daughter goes to, and uh, you know, she choreographs fifty six to ten year olds every week doing Lion King this week. So you're doing God's work, Kate. That is that <laughs> is more more patience than I think any of us could have. And um, and thanks for making my kid love theater. Um, I'm just going to go ahead. I don't think you have anything to say about Kate. Um, I'm sure she's a wonderful person. There you go. So my uh, friend of the show and uh, an official sister of me, Amy Moritz, is postseason baseball becoming like the NBA playoffs where only the ninth inning slash last five minutes matter? Or am I just bitter because these MLB playoff games are taking forever? Um, I think both things can be true here. Um, <laughs> obviously, the pace of play on this year's playoffs is – is bad, even kind of like by playoff baseball standards. Um, but I will say at least the last couple of years, I feel like the baseball playoffs have been pretty good. They've been entertaining. They've been, you know, have really good storylines, really compelling. Um, I don't know. I mean, what's your take on, on the uh, MLB and the postseason baseball question? Um, we don't talk much baseball in this podcast, so. Well, we don't because the only time I really enjoy talking baseball is during the playoffs because the games actually matter. Uh, right. I, I don't think it's the same as as the NBA. First of all, I will say this. As someone who for a long time shared uh, your sister's thought process when it came to um, 
playoff basketball. Uh, I really do think there's a lot to be said for it. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that it's fair to just say, oh, the, only the last five minutes matter. Certainly a lot of games are decided in the last five minutes, but that doesn't mean the rest of the game doesn't matter just because, I mean, it, theoretically by that point, you could say that like 85 to 90% of all sports, only the last five minutes matter or only the last right. few things matter because that's when things end. Um, and so I do think that baseball games are a little bit different in the playoffs, you know, because the, the way I I guess it's for this reason, it's a bunch of one-on-one matchups right, for the whole evening. And, you know, there's uh, certainly there's other actors involved, managers get involved, you get runners on base and that throws a couple of actors into the ring, certainly whatever defender gets into the play. But, uh, there is a sort of a a person versus person matchup that is more compelling when spread out, stretched out over nine hours, not nine hours, five hours, four hours. Oh, some, some of the American League games are about nine hours. Yeah, I I do think they need to make them faster somehow. Like they're just, it is amazing to me how much time ends up getting taken. But I don't really notice it that much, and you know, I certainly. It's certainly a longer game than what you'd get in some of the other sports, but it doesn't – I mean, is she bothered by overtime hockey that stretches to two or three overtimes? I doubt that. I mean, well, I, know, I, mean I mean, look, overtime hockey is such a unique experience because it is, you know, so – there's so end-to-end. There's so – literally the game could end on, a, on any kind of fluky bounce. Um, the, 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 the stakes, like I said, the stakes feel higher on that than, than you know, than, than – a long baseball game, especially an extra inning baseball game. Um, and part of it too, I think that that makes baseball so challenging is, you know, the nature of the game and the nature of pitching is that you throw, you know, that you throw a guy, you, uh, you decide to throw a guy in relief in the fifth inning. He might not be available the next day. It's not like basketball where LeBron's not going to sit because you got to start him the next day. He's going to be out there. Um, hockey, they play, you know, you, you, you manage, you manage minutes, but not to the extent that like, um, in baseball where you throw a guy three innings, he might not be able to pitch for another day. He might have to might not be available the next day. He might have to wait two days to, to get on his normal rest or, or to let his arm rest or whatever. So I think that the nature of that is different as well. Um, you know, I don't know the the I, like I said I think I think with baseball it's always such so much more pace of game than length of game you know a, a long game that's kind of dramatic and, and moves along can still f- be good and my God it's better than most of the NFL games this year um, I NFL found myself really bad. I have found myself watching the 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 MLB Sunday night game on ESPN instead of the the, the Sunday night football game just because. NFL's terrible. I mean, I, again, a five thirty eight. Their podcast had like this this thing how the NFL isn't really that bad this year because games are closer. I don't know whatever metric they do, but just watching them, they're, they're not. And there's that not. They're not well played. They're not entertaining. And my team's doing not bad. And I still don't really want to watch that much. So I, I will say this: the, the NFL feels terribly over regulated right now. Like, oh my god! Yeah, it feels like. You you know every every game we saw it in the Patriots Jets game we see in a bunch of other games it's so much interpretation of rules baseball has mostly avoided that but then you know you just had a controversy with the home plate play in in game two of the uh, the NLCS yesterday mm-hmm. where I mean you, 
you hope – I mean, baseball for the most part has avoided those things, but I worry about baseball because we've had that. We had the – uh, in the in the in game five of the Nats Cubs series, the guy that was tagged out at first base when his hand briefly came off the bag after sliding oh, back in, yeah, like the the little bounce play where like yeah. the guy comes, yeah, like those things will hurt the game of of Major League Baseball in the in the playoffs because mm-hmm. I think that's what's really hurting the NFL is that they've made it so complicated uh, that it it becomes a chore to watch it and it takes right. away from the enjoyment of it. NASCAR's had the same problem, and I think that. You know, hockey's kind of had problems here and there with it over the course of time. I mean, the, the, the offsides rule and the, the, the two-line like, pass yeah. and you know, you know the the crease rule. I mean, all of the things that used to make the game very complicated to, to understand. To their credit, hockey did a good job of getting rid of a lot of those things. And I think, mm-hmm. I guess, going back to the basketball thing, one of the things I like about basketball is the rules are pretty clear. Like, like I right. mean, it's, you're not getting if you, you're going to have you're going to have debates over a foul, whether it was actually a foul or not, but you're not having these, these stupid was the ball out of his hands and then back in by the time he crossed the pylon sorts of arguments where you're having to replay. Right. And so I, that, that, closest, and that's, and that's yeah. starting to happen in baseball. And I do worry about yeah. that. The closest thing you have in basketball. And I usually see this at, at like college at the college level is either the two or the three or like you know, like 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 the 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 video replay on on, on like a transition three, and they look at they look at the, the 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 toe on the line or something like that, or a buzzer beater or something like that. And I, you know, I don't really love replay anyway. But um, but that's different. It, that's, that's, but that's that's but that's to a, evaluate whether something happened, not not to interpret. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're we're coming close on an hour, but I didn't want I do want to give you a chance to to sound off on the UNC ruling. Um, Go man. Well, okay. <laughs> that was. A, that, I, I'll just say I'm a Carolina fan. I, I almost went to UNC for undergrad. I almost went to UNC for my PhD. I'm a Carolina guy through and through. Wow, was that a hot, hot pile of horse shit that they uncorked to 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 get that? Well, and and if you go back and you look at the way that Carolina handled their uh, their hearing with the accreditation group. <laughs> and then you look at the way that they handled their arguments with the NCAA. This was just a naked attempt to avoid any sort of NCAA punishments. And right. by the letter of the law, yeah, they got away with it. But I think what the NCAA did in this case was they handed a, a, a just a great roadmap uh, to the entire dismantling of the amateurism argument. Because if you right. can, if you can, if you can successfully steer athletes in, in disproportionate numbers, which that's what it, North Carolina did. You can steer disproportionate numbers of athletes into sham courses and use that to keep them eligible. What you've done is you've basically admitted that your entire argument about amateurism being there to promote a quality education is a complete fallacy and is basically just there to um, maintain the financial primacy that schools and athletic departments enjoy over the athletes that play the games for them. And so that's, that's my takeaway. I mean, I think it's unfortunate. It's certainly unfortunate for North Carolina because that used to be a really honorable institution. You know, they, they used mm-hmm. to, they used to have, uh, I think a lot of uh, deserved um, 
status within uh, higher education and sports where it's like, you know, hey, North Carolina, they do it, you know, the Carolina way. They do it the right way. And they just they basically just set all that on fire. And and for intelligent mm-hmm. people who paid attention, it'll never come back. Uh, it, it's impossible to take um, North Carolina people seriously on, on academics ever again. Now, unfortunately for them, they have a state government right now that's basically dismantling their educational apparatus anyway in that state. So that's, they're they're kind of getting their own punishment, I guess. But it's, I do think that the NCAA, even, you know, that they, they can't with a straight face go forward and say, yeah, that, that sort of behavior is fine because um, it, it destroys their entire state admission, which again, I think generally is kind of, crap but that's another argument for another podcast well yeah when north carolina the government there has been declared to not be a functioning democracy i mean that is you know that is what, what you guys come in but yeah i mean all all you have to do is you can have all the sham courses that you want as long as you make it available again air quotes to a non-student athlete it's not an impermissible extra benefit um which is insane um i mean it's absolute it's absolute insane that that that's kind of the uh the, the the level you do it at. Um, I do, you know, so I, you know, you do wonder between this and the, um, the ongoing investigation and Rick Pitino was apparently officially formally terminated today. He was not fired. He was, I love the, the, the statement was like, hey, agreed to terminate Richard Pitino. And I just feel like, you know, they, they basically put a hit out on him. Um, but, you know, you do wonder, is, is this where we, you know, I know there's like that, that sham reform commission with Grant Hill and other, other like, you know, reforming college sports and all that. But when I wonder with all the, the reporting and all the commentary that's been out there the last few years, plus UNC, plus the ongoing fraud investigation, I mean, we might be seeing the, 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 the final kind of nails in, in, the, in that traditional coffin and might start see a more fair, equitable system, maybe, nah. perhaps. Nah. I mean, it's gonna it's gonna take it's gonna take some people above the rank of head coach looking at some serious jail time before anything changes here. I just <laughs> I, I don't see it. I'm I've become I become what am I joking? I am cynical. <laughs> I've been cynical for a long time about right? all of this stuff. I mean I think there might be a, a chance for change. I don't think it's gonna come from within. I just there's been no movement on that. I mean if did you all you have to do is look at the commission that the NCAA put together to investigate these sorts of situations. Oh uh, God, it was a joke. Yeah, I mean, and and that's that's what you're going to get. You're, you've got a bunch of people who have absolutely zero internal incentive for any sort of change, and it's gonna it's gonna take something radical to to cause any sort of difference in how it works. So yeah. anyway, so well, I think that wraps it up. Uh, any final Thanks, thoughts sir. from you? No, I, 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 I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to, to next week or next time we record. It's going to get fall, so we're going to be getting close to our, uh, our, uh, our chili beef stew episode that we've been talking about doing. And by talking about, I mean, I mentioned that as a topic today. But it could always I be mean, good to, to, you know, I mean, what, what better use of a podcast than to have two guys talking about their favorite chili recipes? I mean, it's a better use of that than, I mean, it's be- we could just go on Twitter and, like, yell at each other that, that wouldn't be we do that fun. we do that anyway so we might as well get some food out of the deal that's right well we'll we'll figure out a way to make that uh an entertaining episode maybe <laughs> we'll do a live video from both of our kitchens simultaneously or something like that um 
we'll figure out a way to make it work. Anyway, right. thanks for listening, folks. For for Brian Moritz, I'm Galen Clavy. This is the flip side. Uh, be sure to check us out on Twitter. Uh, be sure to hit us up uh, at Dr. GC, at BP Moritz, or at Flipside Pod. Any of those are good options. We'll talk to you when we talk to you again. Catch you on the flip side. So long, everybody. <laughs>